Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. This is part of our Craft Talk Friday edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast. We're running in November, December 2021, in which we're releasing earlier Patreon episodes, Craft Talks that I've had with uh, experienced authors. Now you may ask, what's Patreon? Well, Patreon is a place where supporters of the podcast for a few dollars a month uh, can help us help authors give voice to their written words. And in return, we provide exclusive content. There are over 100 uh, exclusive episodes available at our Patreon channel. That's patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. But for these Fridays in November, December of 2021, we're going to be providing some of our early Patreon episodes to our general listening public. Before I introduce today's author or guest, uh, just a quick reminder that you can find out everything you need to know about Charlotte Readers Podcast at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find our show notes there. You can find uh, all the episodes uh, that we've released. Uh, you can also find our community blog and a way to sign up for the book report, which we send out to you every two weeks with information about the podcast, good books, uh, doses of inspiration, that kind of thing. And uh, hey, we don't spam you because that takes way too much time. I've got one more plug, and it's a shameless one at that. This episode is also brought to you by my own books. You can find out more about my books at LandisWade.com. We've got information there about my Christmas courtroom trilogy, the individual books, and we've also bound them together in one ebook collection if you like ebooks. My next novel, titled Deadly Declarations, is coming out next year. In the first quarter of 2022, it's a mystery. We got information about that on the website as well, landisway.com. It involves the controversial and long-missing Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. A man dies while he's writing a book about the Mech Deck, and when they find his body, the manuscript is missing. But that's enough preamble for today. I want to thank you for spending your valuable time with us. We really appreciate it. And now, let's meet the author and listen to the episode. The author today is Mark Kastrick. Mark uh, recorded this episode with me as the first of our Patreon episodes way back when we started uh, this experiment uh, where people could contribute and help us help authors give voice to their written words. Uh, as I said, uh, for a couple of dollars a month, you can do that, and uh, you get uh, now you get over 100 uh, exclusive episodes, and this is the first one we recorded. Mark has authored 21 books, including two series. In 2022, we'll see the launch of a new series featuring Ethel Fiona Crestwater, a 75-year-old retired FBI agent who now rents rooms to active agents and is the smartest and most fearless of any in her household. Picture Ruth Bader Ginsburg as an FBI agent, and you've got the idea. And in this episode we did together, uh, he came well prepared. We went to the studio. We talked about the elements of a good story and how to write uh, a good mystery. 
And during the course of the episode, he also reads from and discusses his book, which was coming out at the time called Murder in Rat Alley. It's a mystery set in Asheville, North Carolina, as part of his Sam Blackman mystery series. Now, Mark was born in Hendersonville, North Carolina, near Asheville, where he sets uh, uh, his Sam Blackman series. Uh, he went straight from the hospital to the funeral home, where his father was the funeral director and the family lived upstairs. The unusual setting sparked his popular Barry Clayton series and launched his mystery writing career. So he's got those two series and a couple of other novels uh, as well. His novels have received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, and Booklist, and the Chicago Tribune wrote, As important and as impressive as the author's narrative skills are, the subtle ways he captures the geography, both physical and human, of a unique part of the American South. Mark is also a veteran of the broadcast and film production business. Uh, uh, he's directed numerous news and public affairs programs, received an Emmy Award for his documentary film work. Uh, his years in Washington inspired his D.C. thrillers, The 13th Target, involving a terrorist plot against the Federal Reserve, and The Singularity Race, a winner-take-all quest for artificial intelligence. Morgan's wife, Linda, live in Charlotte. Uh, they have two adult daughters. Uh, but he and his wife, Linda, can often be found in the North Carolina mountains uh, or in the nation's capital. Now, in this episode that uh, we recorded together, so we talked about the elements of a good story. Uh, and in this episode, Mark uh, breaks it down sort of into four component parts. Plot, character, setting, and theme. And uh, authors can argue about what's most important uh, of those four, uh, which takes the most precedence, which you develop first, how they fit together. But uh, those are four building blocks for uh, a successful novel. I thought back to this episode as I was developing uh, my latest novel, Deadly Declarations. It is uh, set in Charlotte. Speaking of setting, it's in the modern day, the New South City of Charlotte, uh, in a retirement community. Um, I thought uh, that would be a great place to set the story if one of the underlying themes is going to be dealing with uh, aging and dealing with Act 3s and everything that goes with that. But as far as the plot goes, uh, yeah, it's a mystery. Um, it involves the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, supposedly signed May 20th, 1775, one year before they got around to it in Philadelphia. But then, of course, uh, there's no surviving document. There was a fire in 1800. All the documents burned up. And uh, a lot of people think uh, it's nothing more than a fantasy. Others are true believers. There is a certain narrative to that story that is true up to a point. Uh, but after that, it's mostly argument on one side or the other. It's a great jumping off place for a novelist. And I thought it would be fun to set this, this novel uh, in a retirement community with Three characters, all unique, who have something to bring to the table, who team up uh, to try to solve this mystery that's thrust upon them when a 96-year-old resident in the retirement community dies while he's working on a manuscript about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. And when they find the body, the manuscript is missing. The fun part for me in developing this book, though, was uh, the second item in Mark's list, character. And that's what some authors think is the most important piece of writing a novel. Um, I had a lot of fun developing the characters for this book. One is a, a lawyer who's kicked out of his law firm uh, over an ethical fight with the managing partner at around age 65 and thinks his life is over. 
ends up at the Independence Retirement Community, otherwise known as the Indy. Another character, uh, he's a 75-year-old guy with a scruffy beard who shoots trout in a pond with his rifle and believes in conspiracies. And then there's Harriet. Uh, she might be the most level-headed of the group, a former businesswoman who tries to keep this trio together when it comes time to move forward and solve this mystery. So what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to talk about uh, the, the elements of a good story, talk about writing mystery. Mark's going to read a little bit uh, from one of his books, and so I hope you enjoy it. So happy to be in the studio with uh, Mark Kastrick. He is... Uh, He's only written 19 novels. For those of you who uh, think that writing novels are easy, <laughs> welcome, Mark. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm great. Landis, <laughs> yeah. great to be here. So I'm staring at your book here. It's uh, Murder in Rat Alley, and I love the title. It's your latest that's coming out. Uh, well, by the time this comes out, it will be out, right? right? So in December, it's coming out, right? And and so we're going to – this will be up in January. So you got Murder in Rat Alley. It's uh, in the mountains of, uh, of North Carolina, set in Nashville, right? It's a real place in Asheville. Rat Alley mm-hmm. is a place, mm-hmm. and um, and it just with the, with the with the name Rat Alley, it immediately came to mind that somebody's got to die there. <laughs> well, somebody's got to die in every mystery, right? I, mean, <laughs> I guess so. That's true. That's Hopefully, you, it's not the author <laughs> or well, the book sales or, or, or the protagonist. Or it'd be a pretty short book, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Uh, so we're going to be uh, talking writing today, and uh, you did a. You did a little presentation recently to the Charlotte Writers Club, and uh, I listened to it, took some good notes, and I thought there's some really some really good nuggets here in writing and things you've learned over your uh, many years of writing mysteries. So uh, we're going to start out, and, and listeners, by the way, you're going to get to hear a little bit uh, from Murder in Red Alley before we're done, too, so so don't uh, don't run away too soon. You're going to find out what maybe what happened in Red Alley. <laughs> but uh, we're going to start out with, um, sort of the four elements of a story. And uh, we're going to do other things in this episode. Uh, we're going to talk about point of view. Uh, we're going to talk about the um, arc of the story, the different acts in the story. Mark's going to give us some tips on detecting if you're thinking about writing a, your own mystery. And then he's going to have some wrap-up thoughts as well. But Mark, first, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk a little bit about uh, the elements of a story. Well, I think the thing about stories is they are part of our DNA and kind of separate us from the rest of the species on this on this planet. And uh, I think the the very first criticism that I'm aware of that uh, guided writers uh, was Aristotle back 2,400 years ago doing the poetics. And he's he's the one that called out, you know, a story has to have a beginning and a middle and an end, and there has to be plot and, and characters developed through it. Uh, that's kind of been refined into... What what are not original with me, but four pillars that I try to keep balanced in writing a story, and they are plot, character, setting, and theme. Plot, of course, is what happens in the story, basically just events, but uh, Aristotle gave us the guidance that those events should not be episodic. In other words, they shouldn't just arbitrarily one follow the other. It actually should be that event A causes event B, that then causes event C, and so what you have done is build up a cumulative impact uh, if your story builds properly. Character, uh, it's obviously the people in the story, and I feel like you have to care about at least one of them, or you're not going to get engaged in the story. It becomes a so what. I could care less what happens to these people. But character also exists with a capital C, and that's the moral standing revealed in the choices that the character makes 
And that also contributes to the complexity of the character. Setting, you know, when you think setting, you think place. We're here in the studio doing the podcast, but uh, there's a guy by the name of Robert McKee that I would recommend. He wrote a book called Story, which looks at elements of storytelling, and he uh, said that there are four aspects of setting, and I, and I like his analysis. He says there's a place in space, which would be the geographical location. There's a place in time for your setting. That's the period in which it's happening. And then there's a length in time, the duration of the story. Does it take place in just 24 hours like Ulysses or Mrs. Dalloway, or does it maybe stretch out over thousands of years like the uh, Orson Scott Card's uh, Ender series uh, does? And then finally, this fourth dimension he mentions is uh, really kind of a setting of culture. If I'm writing a story that's set in the military, um, present day, or I'm writing a story that's set in the banking world, there are going to be differences in those stories and uh, how the characters behave and under what, uh, under what rules they're, uh, they're going. And then the last thing, theme, um, I would say that's what Aristotle considers the universal truths that we learn from the particulars of a story. And these themes could be things like self-sacrifice, Love, hate, compassion, emotional healing, revenge. You know, why do we cry when uh, Bambi's mother is shot? She's, she's just a piece of celluloid running through a projector. Uh, why did I sob when Old Yeller got put down? Uh, it's just because there are those things that you relate to. Stephen King, I think, makes a good observation on theme. Uh, he has a book called On Writing that I would recommend. And he warns against the uh, dangers of writing fiction with a theme in mind. It means that if you lead with a theme, and that becomes your crusade, you run the risk of turning your story into a sermon. And King states that his themes are products of his subconscious. So he writes his story, sets it aside for a time being, and given how prolific Stephen King is, it's probably about 15 or 20 minutes, he picks it up and reads it again, this time consciously looking for a theme. And then he enhances that theme in his revision, but it lets him know that that theme evolved organically from the story and not the other way around. So you got these four pillars. What's fueling them? Well, it's conflict. There has to be some kind of dramatic tension to engage the reader. And in mystery, there's conflict. And that usually creates a murder. I like to have my lead characters in internal conflict. I write a series uh, set in a fictional town in western North Carolina, and the protagonist is a funeral director. He doesn't want to be there. He had another career in mind, and his dad uh, developed Alzheimer's, so he had to come back. Let's, so, let's tell him who we, we're talking about. We're talking about Barry and Barry. Barry right? and Barry. Barry and Barry. His name is Barry, Barry Clayton. Right. And so he's had to come back to run the family funeral home. And over the series, the place that he didn't want to be, he learns that that's exactly where he needs to be. Uh, my other series, the Sam Blackman series, is set in Asheville. This is an Iraqi war veteran who lost part of his left leg in the war. He's coming to grips. His internal conflict is dealing with this loss. What does it mean to be whole when part of you is physically missing? And over the course of the, of the series, 
he comes to grips with that as well. So without conflict, there's no reader engagement. There's no cathartic experience. So when they come together and work together, then I think you've really got the, the, the best story structure that you can have. Since we're just kind of my, my own personal tutoring session here, where I, can, I can ask questions as we go here. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think you mentioned this when you were speaking to the Charlotte Writers Club, this idea of internal conflict. You've written a number of books uh, with these characters in mind. And so at some point, these characters have got to resolve an internal conflict, or after a while it becomes old, right? Correct. And then you have to look for some other conflict because we don't just go through life having one internal conflict, right? Right, And so you're doing that through the course of these different books, and you're solving and addressing these internal conflicts. So you're getting in the heads of these characters, right? That's correct. And you write in first person or third person? I think it's third, right? Uh, no, it's first person mm-hmm. for my two series. I've so written some third person. Written, and well, we can talk about that in a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about perspective in a second. Yeah. But, but, but just in terms of uh, the internal versus external conflict, a lot of times people think of conflict as you know, you got a bad guy and you got a good guy, and they're at each other's throats through this. But the internal conflict can also get to some of these underlying themes, right? Absolutely. And I think that that comes back to when we talked about character with a capital C, and it's defined by the character's choices that he makes. When a character is torn between choices, that's internal conflict and external court mm-hmm. conflict. Sophie's choice, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Internal, Good internal conflict. So, uh, and before we jump to uh, this next section of your of your talk today, Go back to these four pillars for just a minute. You've got plot, character, setting, and theme. If you had to pick, based on your many years of experience, what's most important? Well, here is where I and many other people would disagree with Aristotle. Okay. He listed plot as first. And I think in the modern novel, it grows out of character. And that its character, uh, plot is in service to the character, revealing things about the character not the other way around. Now, in a mystery, particularly those kind of locked room, Agatha Christie, Colonel Mustard was done in by the wrench or whatever, plot in the, the events. Can, the candlestick. Right. And, yeah. and, you, and Colonel, Colonel Mustard may not may be more of a cardboard character, though Agatha Christie was really right. a terrific writer, uh, used to move the plot around as opposed to the events moving the, you know, uh, driving the ca- characters driving the events rather than the other way around. Yeah, and, and sometimes I think uh, authors who want to tell a story for the first time, and I think I fell into this too because when the editor got a hold of me after the first draft, it was like, now, you know, what's going on in the space around these characters? You know, which speaks to setting, right? You've mm-hmm. got to put the – things don't happen in a vacuum. Not They don't happen in a podcast studio, right? They happen, <laughs> they happen in, Oh, it all <laughs> happens here, Landis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They happen in places that people frequent, you know? Right. <laughs> you know? And, and it's not a podcast studio. So when putting it in a setting actually enriches the conversation. It enrich, and, and, and when you have things going on around the conversation and around the, the, the plot with the characters, doesn't it speak to and help advance the theme a little bit to, to put, put it in that context? Absolutely, it does. And I, I think that for those things to work together, your story shouldn't be so portable that you could pick it up from Asheville, North Carolina, and drop it in Nassau hmm. and have the same story. The, I guess the phrase is setting can become a character yeah, unto yeah. its own, and it's something else that the other characters are dealing with, working through, working working around, and I think those, those make the most interesting stories. 
Well, you mentioned Stephen King, and, and <laughs> some of his settings are like the back of a car with a rabid dog in it, you know, <laughs> yeah, Cujo, you know. That's right. And, and yeah, and, and you're I mean, she probably doesn't think about his uh, theme because I think I heard him, I read the book on writing as well, and what he said he tries to do is, uh, you know, he puts a character that he likes in a very difficult, almost insurmountable spot or corner mm-hmm. or that back seat with Cujo outside barking its head off and slobbering, you know, to, and the rest of the book is trying to get out of the car <laughs> or the rest of the book is trying to get out of the jam right. that the character's in. You know? Misery where the guy's held captive. Misery where the guy's held captive. <laughs> We're seeing a theme here. In his right. Right. <laughs> and yet <clears throat> and yet he's doing pretty well with, with that work. So, okay, so we got uh, plot, character, setting, theme. So now we're going to move toward this uh, idea of how you use all these to actually tell the story, right? And and the story, um, and, and we don't want to use the word formula, right? Maybe S- what, structure. What I prefer structure. Sure. Right. I think the, what underpins Gerd's constructs the story. But you know, I read the book. You know, save uh, save the cat writes a novel, and they talk about that. That historically. Uh, there is kind of a formula or a structure to any good hero's journey type story. Right. And Joseph Campbell kind of laid all that out for us. Uh, yeah. And so, okay, you still got to write something that's entertaining and interesting. If you use a structure that people can relate to, uh, why wouldn't you do it? I mean, why wouldn't you use something that helps you tell the story? And that's where these sort of three acts come in, right? To the, right. To the storytelling. So, before we get to the structure, though, of the, of the story, we should talk about how you're going to choose to tell the story. Whose you know, perspective are you going to use? Whose point of view are you going to be in? So talk about that for just a minute. Well, I think the, you know, the choice of perspective is not only what is the narrator's perspective to the story, but what the reader's perspective is the story, because the narr- narrative voice kind of guides the reader uh, in the relationship to, to what's happening in the world of the of the characters. Um, and, and so we tend to think of, you know, first person, second person, third person as the kind of fallback general categories. There's varieties on, on each of those, and and I think when you make the choice... It's what's the impact that you want that voice to have on the reader uh, because it makes a difference. And in, uh, say, a traditional mystery, for example, where you have a detective and, and you're matching wits with the detective, those are most commonly told in the first person. You're in the mind of the detective. You're seeing what the detective is seeing. You're supposedly absorbing the clues like, like he is, and then it's kind of like, can I figure this out before the, de- the detective does? Then there's an, another third third uh, point of view, third person point of view, that's almost like first person, and that would be you know Landis turned on the mic for the podcast instead of I turned on the mic for the podcast. But everything in the story would be with you in the scene, and we don't go anywhere you don't. Right. Go. So you're, we're kind of staying in my head. So Landis uh, turned on the mic in the podcast. Uh, it occurred to him that Mark didn't look as prepared as he thought he was going to be when he came into the studio not carrying the papers that he had with him at the Charlotte Writers Club. Right. Now, I haven't – we stayed in Landis's head, you know. Right. So that's sort of third-person close, right? Third-person close. Right. But there's a, there's another f- flavor of that, right. which is third-person close where you couldn't say he thought Mark 
wasn't prepared because we don't want to know anybody's thoughts. Right. And, and this is the, the example <laughs> I like is uh, Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett, which is a great story. It right. stood the test of time. By the way, you are prepared, so go uh, ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see when we get to the end yeah. of this. Yeah. Um, that we are with Sam every scene, but Hammett never gives us any thoughts of anybody. Everything, you're like a camera in the room, just watching and listening, and, and you make of it what you will, but you're not hearing any thoughts. And the reason that the risk of spoiling the story for other people is that Hammett wanted not only the characters not to know what each other are thinking or the detective to be making deductions that we know about, he didn't want us to know what Sam was thinking as he pursued the case because all of the other characters and the readers along with those characters believe Sam is going after the Maltese Falcon when really what he's doing is trying to find out who killed his partner. And when we get to the end and that's revealed, a lot of things fall into place as to, to why he did what he did strictly to get to the heart of the story that he wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. That's where you have a third person, very limited, but objective point of view. Yeah, and so you've actually got to use different techniques to get the point across. If I was going to be in third person, as you described, I couldn't say Landis was getting the mic ready and it occurred to him that Mark wasn't prepared. Yes, Landis was getting the mic ready. Mark walked in the room. He didn't have anything with him. Right. He didn't have his book. He didn't have his papers. And that would be all I could say to lead you to the conclusion that I otherwise would put in my head. Yeah. But how do you get to the internal conflict with like a third person that doesn't let you dive into the head? You've got to use some different techniques there too, right? Yeah. And I think some of that is, you know, there's the adage you show, you don't tell. Right. There's flexibility in that because you're obviously telling a yeah. story and your narrator is telling a story and that uh, and so you have to do it by I guess uh, mannerisms and reactions and, and uh, sure. Hammett in the Maltese Falcon if you read that he's always talking about people's eyes they were wide they were narrow they were yellow they were whatever just to, to find out externally what you think is going on inside that character's mind and, that, and that's a good technique no matter which point of view you use because even in third person limited you don't want the character uh, through their thoughts telling you what's going on as much as you want them to reveal what's going on in the world around them through the setting the dialogue the conversation what's happening what the other person is doing and where the, you know that kind of thing to to reveal those circumstances otherwise it'd be just like a narrative treatise or something right yeah. So, okay, so you got uh, these different point of views. I'd you, move on to then third-person omniscient, where you right. know everything that's going on, and and uh, what the hero or the protagonist isn't in every scene, that you're jumping around all over the place. That can be difficult if it seems to be arbitrary to the reader. You're, you're telling me this, but you're withholding that. You know, an example would be, you are the protagonist, Landis Wade Detective Agency, mm-hmm. and... The narrator has told us everything that you've read, seen, thought. Except one important Except thing. one point when yeah. you, you walk into, break into an office at night and open the file and, you, and, then, and the voice says, and then Landis knew everything, <laughs> end of chapter, <laughs> leaves us hanging, doesn't come back and tell us. You know, yeah. I would say that's not, that's, that wasn't fair. That wasn't fair. <laughs> so, wrong. Mark, you, I, I hear this theme here. You're all about fairness in, in, in dealing with uh, mysteries, right? You want to 
you want to, and you're going to talk about this a little, I think, you, you want to tell a good story, you want to drop clues, you want to be fair to the reader so they can maybe kind of be one step behind but not be totally surprised right. at the end of the story. Um, so just to, but before you go to omniscient again, so you got first person, uh, of course that's I, the word mm-hmm. I appears a lot <laughs> in the story. Some people do that better than others. You know, there's second person. You don't see that very often. It's you. Right. You Almost right. like you're speaking directly right. to the reader. There's third person, and there's all different levels of right. third person, like you talked about. And then there's omniscient, the God who knows everything that's going on. And in there are risks sometimes with, um, depending on which one you select, that you're hopping from one head to the other if you're not careful. And they call that head hopping, I guess. If you're like, if you're in first person, you shouldn't necessarily know what's in the mind of the other person. To, um, to be true. To be true to that. To, to that point of view. Correct. Okay. Uh, an editor will pay real close attention to it, but a reader could be confused right. by it, right? And I think and nowadays, you know, it seems it's not that uncommon to see mixed points of view. You may have a chapter that is third person objective or third person omniscient. And then you'll go to a character's voice, alternate. I just uh, finished a book called, uh, reading a book called Whisper Man that was a Stephen King. It's a, it's a, it's a good story. Uh, but one character you're always with in third person, while the father of a child who's in jeopardy, you're in his mind to hear his angst and anguish. Yeah. It works. But yeah. you have to kind of get into the flow and realize, okay, it jarred me at first, but now I get it, you know. And, I and I've read it. books that are very interesting where one chapter is in one point of view and the next chapter is sort of the same scene but through another point of view, which adds a dynamic that you don't get when you put them both in the same chapter. Um, all right, sort of recap to where we are at this point. We've got uh, character before plot, according to Mark. you got four elements of the story, plot, character, setting, and theme, um, you've got internal and external conflict to drive those four features, and then you've got to choose your perspective um, as you go into the story because you've got to have a method to tell your story. Are you a omniscient narrator? Do you know everything as you're telling the story, or are you looking at it from your individual point of view in the first person, or are you third person? You're telling it in a way. But one thing we hadn't talked about is tense, um, and uh, present tense, past tense. Most, I think, books are written in a, in a past tense version. Do you have any comments on that before we move to the next I think I think uh, present tense is putting you in more immediacy, technically. I think it's, it's a little, it's limiting to write in, in present tense because, again, you're only where that you're person only at that is point in, time. in it. Yeah. And it's usually... You know, uh, another confining mm-hmm. thing. So you have to weigh, change it off the other. You know, I'll use past tense in what they would, I guess you would call kind of a present past tense. It's a, the story's being related as it happened, but with an immediacy that you need to have, putting people in the scene, smelling, tasting, hearing, uh, seeing what's happening in that in that scene, even though it quote was technically past. Flashbacks give you another challenge right. because that's a different tense you know and and i guess the the cheaty thing that i do is would we'll start like you know landis had come in early that morning to get ready for the podcast because he'd heard that mark dicastic was very unprepared when he came <laughs> for these things and and we talk about back then but i would 
gradually drop the haves and haves and right. slide into just the straight past yeah. tense to, again, help with the immediacy of the scene. I was thinking about that because even if someone's writing in first person and they're in the present, they could have a flashback and, and they could even decide to do it in, in past tense as part of that. They just have to – the transition is tricky a little bit. And then even when you're writing in past tense, if you're going to go back further, as you said, in time – you know, it's awkward to say he had said this on this day and then keep in he had said that or she had said this or she. But but your technique that you mentioned is a good one. And I saw it in a book recently um, that uh, Kimry Martin wrote that's going to be out uh, in February. Um, she was moving backwards in time to a scene that she needed to tell. But in in a couple of sentences, she used the had but then after that, she dropped all that and stayed in just the traditional past tense because you were there with right. the characters right. at that point. Right. It just kind of you leveled down to that point, and then you just told it as if you were in that living room at that point in time twenty years ago, and then you just moved back into the, into the present. Right, and yeah. it's not jarring. You've, right, you've guided the you've you've navigated, and with the readers the, are smart enough to figure it. it out. They see that you've now gone back into time, right. and and they you know it's kind it's nice too because. You get to the characters at that point in time who are engaging with each other in dialogue and what's going on, and it's not awkward with the saids and the hads and so forth. Yeah. Okay, so we got that. We got uh, elements. Let me mention one thing sure. about in choosing the – I mean, you, there, there should be a purpose for the perspective that you choose. It's not just arbitrary because your story is going to work with that, whether it's consistent with one point of view or not. But in the suspense, thriller – genre or sub-genre of mystery thriller, those are almost always written in the third person because the author is taking you to various places and giving you more information than the protagonist has. And that's what helps set up the, set up the uh, suspense because, you know, we finished this podcast and I offered to go buy you a beer down at the pub but you, the reader would go, don't do that. He's killed four podcast <laughs> moderators, you know, by offering to buy them beer. Don't and that, go, that sets up the tension. Don't go down that. No. <laughs> don't open that door to, no. down those steps. But, but you're right. If you're in, uh, if you use third person, you can then put, your set, put yourself in the head of the villain and learn some things about the villain that the protagonist doesn't know that might reveal a side or character of the villain that's unknown to the protagonist. That's right. You know, so you can do some things by going from from one head to the other with third person. As long as you don't as long as you make it clear whose head you're in when you make that switch. I think that's important. And you and you raise a really good point because in a in a mystery or a crime novel, the villain's story is the underlying story really of why this happened. The detective or police officer or whatever is trying to uncover the villain's Story and so I had read a quote that said, "You know, your your hero is only as good as your as your villain is bad, and you don't have a <laughs> yeah. totally bad villain or a totally great hero. They both character have character flaws and, and virtues, as minor as they may be, to make them interesting." That's interesting. Okay, so you also had a Kurt Vonnegut quote. I think you used before. Every character has to want something. Right, every character on every page needs to be wanting something. Be wanting something. And that yeah. sets up conflict. Right, you know. right. Okay, you want to move to the axe now? 
yes, that's uh, this is kind of this is not original with me. Uh, there's a mystery writer called Carolyn Wheat who wrote a book called How to Write Killer Fiction, and uh, she looked at the structure of a mystery novel and calling it into four arcs. And, and I really like what what she she did, and I think it's helpful just for general storytelling where you have conflict points and plot points come up, but. Uh, Obviously, Arc One has the original title of "The Beginning," and uh, <laughs> the inciting and, incident. Maybe. And, and what she would do is kind of set up the problem, the conflict, uh, what the obstacles would be. Um, just to use some of my own books, my Barry Clayton series. Um, there's usually something in the first chapter that that is, is as you said, the inciting incident to move it along. In one of them, he's uh, moving a grave for a family that they want their interred loved one's remains moved over to a different cemetery in the county where the family now is. And as they dig down, they find a skeleton on top of the vault. And they realize, Barry realizes this has been a duplex instead of just a single grave. And to further engage him in that, when they look through the wallet or deteriorating wallet of the skeleton, he finds out that this person was a private detective and that he also has a picture in his wallet of Barry's girlfriend. So Barry then is drawn into what happened to this man and why is my girlfriend's picture in his wallet? Yeah, well, I think you told me one before that in all good mysteries, there's got to be a body somewhere near the first page, right? Right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> in this case, there were two bodies in, in, in the first chapter, right? One on top of the other. <laughs> two for the price of one. Uh, yeah. Okay, so you got you got this first act and you got to draw people in. And when I talk to authors, you know, this the Charlotte Reese podcast, you know, one of the things is, it's where authors give voice to the written words. So we do a lot of reading on the show because I want listeners to hear what authors, uh, you know, because authors know better than anyone what, where, where the pauses are, what their intentions were with, with, with the work. That takes to the, to the point of the first plot point is when the situation changes. Yeah. And, that, and that, that plot point may happen different for different genres of mystery. If you have an amateur uh, the, the, the plot point changes. It's not necessarily the murder. The murder itself may not be the plot point. It's the decision of the amateur person to get involved. Yeah. Why didn't Landis just dial 911 and get out of it? What was the thing that kept you in the game and, and, and is driving you to solve the mystery for yourself? That would be a good plot point one. Yeah, and when I was going, I just, it just occurred to me, I better say it before I forget it again. You know how we are when we get over age 60. You know? Yep. <laughs> so it had to do with the inciting incident. Okay, so authors come on the show, we pick things we're going to read, and they're trying to decide what we're going to read on the show. And I say, well, let's, what was the part you worked on the most to try to draw the reader in? It was probably near the very beginning of the book, right? And that's that's where you re authors really work hard, I think, to try to capture the reader's attention early in the book. And so there's got to be some kind of inciting incident, something that draws the reader. And in mystery, it just so happens to be, okay, there's going to be a body right. somewhere, right. somehow. In, in a thriller, somebody may be running for their life or something right, you know, right off the bat. Uh, now, literary fiction may be a little bit different, but still, there's going to be something about that first chapter uh, that's going to cause the reader to want to stay engaged, right? Something right. that excites their interest and curiosity uh, in the story. And, now, hin and hence, it may not be that clear, but hence that this is this person I'm meeting is somebody I need to care about mm -hmm. or, or worry about. Right. And Act One, um, 
for that reason, it's shorter than Act Two. <laughs> right. Yeah. Act Two, you, you you had a term for it. I think you used it. Charlotte well, Rose usually, and, and Carolyn kind of lumps them together as Act Two and Act Three is the big right. bad middle. The big and bad. It's kind of like once the once the detective, you know, the amateurs taking the case, or for the career police officer it's become personal or the private investigator discovers that what he thought he was investigating turned out to be something entirely different those are the kinds of things that that at plot point one the end of that arc one propel the story on into the big bad middle and if you have a 400 page book you may roughly have 200 of those pages or more that are in that middle yeah and you talked part. about that and um, i've heard you talk about this when when you get to the end of that first act You've had the body, you've had this. If it's an amateur, they're stumbling, they're getting in the way, and, and they're going to decide, well, I'm going to investigate and solve this murder. That propels you into act right. two. And it has to be a believable reason for doing it because that's, right. that's, the, that's the author's job is to make sure that you as a reader suspend your disbelief and go like, okay, I can see that. And it may be because the, you think there's a cover-up or the police botched the investigation, or you were the first to find the body and you saw things there that you think the police should have done, or there's some personal connection. Yeah, and you said, you and you said it might be different when it's, it's the professional, uh, you know, the police officer. Maybe there's something personal to them about this particular murder that makes them want to invest even more time in solving it than they would otherwise, or Cor- something mysterious or different that right. propels it's it. suddenly out of the ordinary yeah out of the routine and that propels you into what you call the big bad middle i guess uh that and that's where you meet other characters in the middle and, right and the, you meet other characters and the detecting begins because the the mystery solution has started or the investigation has started and there's several detecting techniques that right. we can just run over real, do, real do, quick do that. yeah that's what we're, um, we're here to talk about well there's the the, the famous question and answering Okay. <clears throat> where you're bringing in and either interviewing or it gets more serious interrogating um, suspects. But that can be kind of boring because it's it's a lot of talking heads. And there's a couple things that they suggest you use to, to spice it up. One is um, choose an interesting setting uh, for this conversation to happen. Uh, don't let all the witnesses roll over. Some of them should fight you, you know, or, or refuse to speak. Uh, you can have a witness that you think is just going to be a, a side witness who reacts so violently to being questioned that you realize there's a cover-up or something has been revealed. Um, witnesses don't have to tell the truth. They can lie, and that's part of what the detective has to determine is whether he was getting truthful information or not. And then a cooperative witness can clam up. You know, It was fine on Monday, but when you went back to see her on Tuesday, suddenly she doesn't want to have anything to do with you. And those characters that you're interviewing have their own personalities. They may be quirky and allows for s- snappy banter and, and conversation. And, and sometimes those those characters, I've talked to authors that have said this, and I've had this happen before. Sometimes you throw in a minor character like that who just won't get off the page. And you, you kind of fall in love with them, <laughs> and you find out you know that this character's got more to bring than you, you thought. Uh, Okay, Mark, in addition to the Q&A, which I'm familiar with as a lawyer, because that's what lawyers do, ask questions, there are other ways that the detective can work without asking questions, right, to try to get solutions to the mystery. That's right, and one of those most common things, obviously, is uh, physical evidence that's found. Uh, Now, 
if the detective is an amateur or a private investigator, that's a little bit of a problem with the physical evidence because the cops don't like to spread it around or, sh- or let the, uh, those people get near it. Unless they overlook it sometimes, and the amateur finds what the cops overlooked. Right, right? what that missed. And there, <laughs> those are some techniques that you can do because yeah. uh, that's why uh, amateurs and private investigators have boyfriends and girlfriends that are in the police department, <laughs> in case you hadn't uh, figured that out. Okay. Uh, but, or the amateur can get there, the PI can get there first, or they can get there to some of the evidence, like maybe an answering machine or uh, office files or something that gets there before the, the police. Uh, but that's physical evidence is an important component of the detecting process. And then reasoning. Well, of course, you, gotta, you get these clues, you get these interviews, you have to start piecing them together. Thinking is a critical part of the middle part of a, of a book. But talk about something that can be boring because <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. all, it's all in, internal. So, you know, some, some uh, techniques that Carolyn Wheat describes in, in her book are that you could uh, add a sidekick. Well, that's what I was going to say. You could do it in dialogue. Right. right. Yeah. And it's you and the sidekick, you know, talk things through. Uh, what do you mean about that? that? That can't possibly be what happened. But think about it this way. It could have been this. Oh, well, I see. I, okay. You know. And the sidekick can be amazed. Yeah. I just think of uh, John Watson's <laughs> whole purpose for being with Sherlock Holmes was to be astounded, you know. Yeah, uh, that everything, yeah. Okay. By what, what, what he came up with. Um, and you can have um, uh, act out a crime. Like, you know, you pace off the distance between point A and point B, or if someone was thrown against the wall and there was blood splatter or something like this, you can make it as graphic as you want to, but you're walking through the crime to reenact what happened. Uh, and the other thing is don't put all the, the thinking and the speculation in one scene. You spread it out because you're getting new information and sort of like you kind of check in along the path you because you're actually, you and the reader should be doing the same thing. Okay, what does this change? How does this change where we are and where the investigation is? headed and then in some books you'll see diagrams of a house or timelines that are drawn out or other kind of things like that that can actually be printed in the in the book um one caution that you need to think about if you're writing is that anything that the uh, reader can come up with as a solution your detective has to come up with as a solution because otherwise you haven't given an ending that's the only way it could happen and if you're if Landis comes up reads the book and comes up with the but it could this could have happened then either and the writer and go oh gee yeah it, it could have <laughs> could, uh I have missed messed up you know uh, because I should have thought of that myself and then found a reason why that solution didn't well didn't I, I went to a book signing at Park Road Books once it was a actually it was John Hart and John Gresham who were both there together and they were interviewing each other and they're friends and John Gresham was giving John Hart a, lot, a hard time about how long it takes him to write a book compared to how many John Gresham cranks out <laughs> right, that's right. You know, in a year. And, you know, Hart was explaining how, yeah, purple prose does get in his way a little sometimes, and he, it takes a while to write these out. He's a really good writer. And he said he was at book signing one time, and his book's, what, 350 pages long or something, and this woman comes up to him and says, uh, I knew who did it on page 150. And he goes, well, hell, you know a lot sooner than I do. <laughs> so that's that's an example of the reader figuring right, it out before right, the writer, right, right? Coming up with a solution uh, too. Before yeah, the and we'll talk about that in a minute about why endings don't don't work. Okay. Um, so you have this these detecting uh, techniques going on, 
you get to the end of the of that arc and you at the mid around the midpoint of the book and what defines that plot point is that something happens that changes everything and sets the detective back that may be that your prime suspect winds up being murdered himself or another body shows up and your prime suspect has an ironclad alibi like he was in jail on being mm-hmm. arrested for the first crime. Uh, this is the thing that then everything has to kind of be rethought uh, at, from that point on. So, so you're progressing to a solution, and then suddenly all is lost again. Right. Because you got, you're back to square one. Right. Maybe, you, maybe you're below square one. Maybe right. you're, you've, do you have an example of that in your recent book that you could share with us? I'll be happy to. Uh, this book is, the, is titled Murder in Rat Alley. It's set in Asheville. Rat Alley is a, is a real place. Um, if you go to Asheville and, and Patton Avenue, which is one of the main streets in Asheville, um, Asheville's so hilly that Patton Avenue, for a stretch, is uh, paralleled by a street beside it, Wall Street, that's actually a story above it. So that the buildings at that section of Patton Avenue, the ground level has a pub and other stores and stuff like that. The second floor of that building opens up onto the street behind them uh, as its ground level street. So there was no way for them to have the lower stores and, and pubs to have a back door entrance. So they dug a tunnel back behind them and it's been named Rat Alley. Yeah. And I thought when I, when I learned this, little known facts about Asheville that, that happened in this series, I thought that's gotta be a place where somebody passes Somebody's away. Somebody's gonna have to. Die in Rat Alley. So um, just a quick, quick setup. Um, This story starts with a body being discovered at a former Apollo uh, space program tracking station that was in the Pisgah National Forest. This part is true, and it's still up there. You can go up and see it. But they discovered during some construction a body of a missing scientist that disappeared roughly almost 50 years ago during one of the Apollo uh, missions. And they've managed to track down his fiance at the time, who plays in a little mountain family band up in Asheville. And they're playing at Jack of the Wood, which is a real pub in Asheville. Its back door goes into Rat Alley. And she has told them, this former fiance, that she she now knows something or remembers something that's important to the case. And they're going to talk to her after she plays her musical set. They can't find her. And so... Sam Blackman and Nikayla, my two protagonists, my detective team, decide they maybe ought to check Rat Alley. <laughs> Better check so, the alley. So Better you know check. what's coming. Yep. Okay. This is in first person. This is Sam. I opened the door and stepped into a sauna of trapped August heat. The alley was actually a tunnel with only one far entrance. I realized we were underneath Wall Street, the road that fronted the second stories of the buildings built on Patton Avenue. The alley was the only one access for back doors on the lower level. It stinks out here, Michaela complained. Well, with a name like Rat Alley, it's not going to be prime real estate. The tunnel looked like it was about 40 yards long. Other restaurants and shops had back doors with trash cans, empty beer kegs, and HVAC units lining their walls. Bright single bulb lamps hung high on the concrete block wall opposite the doors. If Loretta wanted to leave without her family knowing, all she had to do was walk out the tunnel entrance, Nikayla said. 
Maybe, but you think she would have left her fiddle? I turned away from the tunnel entrance and walked to the darker, closer end. A rear bicycle wheel protruded from behind a stack of metal kegs. Someone had knocked it over. I stepped around the kegs into the niche between them and the wall. The bike was an old Schwinn for girls, the kind with a spring saddle seat and balloon tires. There were pink tassels on the handlebar grips, tassels that draped across the open, sightless eyes of Loretta Case Johnson. Yikes. <laughs> so that's so, what happened in Rat. That's what happened in Rat Alley. That's what happened about midway through the book. And how is Loretta important to the plot again? So. She is the fiance of the murdered. She was the former fiance of the murdered scientist okay. who's remembering something from 50 years earlier that could prove, would have proven key. So she would have been a key solution. witness potentially. Exactly. Yeah, and so now you don't have her as a witness anymore. Now you don't have her as a witness, and and but she, but she, not to give too much away, but she did sing a song that was not on the on the planned song. Her family is surprised that changed verse to an old mountain ballad that made them think she was actually talking about her former former lover. Okay, so that's right, what so they have to do. run out and get the book here, Murder in Red Alley. Murder in Red Alley. All right, so now we, everything's changed on us. We've got to re- rethink a little bit. We're forced to recognize that we've got to go in a different direction. So are we in act we're three? At, we're arc three, yeah, arc, arc three. three. Okay. And, uh, and so after you've kind of found the second body or something that's changed in there and they're rethinking it, um, you may have to go back and re-interview witnesses, re, revisit uh, your theories that, to do it. But what's happening in this part is the, the uh, stakes should be, ri- be rising up, and maybe things get more violent or more threatening or something so that you build the tension up in this, uh, in this arc, arc three of the story. <clears throat> um, then you get to the, the ending, and the ending is crucial for reader satisfaction because this is where we've been talking about playing fair with the reader. And because there's kind of, for a traditional mystery, there's kind of a contract that, that I have with you, the reader, that I'm going to lay things out there, not overly hide clues, um, so that you would have a chance to do it. And, and hopefully what you would say is, oh, gosh, I should have seen that. Or I missed this, and it was perfectly right, logical. Right. At, Why didn't I see that coming? Yeah. Uh, now, the ending... There's non-action endings. You know, most of the most of the books have a climax, uh, um, mano a mano uh, confrontation between the vil- villain and the uh, and the hero. But sometimes it's not so much who the killer was, but why the killer did what he did or how he did what he did. Um, you can have a two-layer ent- uh, ending where the the detective solves the crime, but then uncovers that there was a second crime behind the first that you didn't know about and, and and one that I wrote in my first first book which was the Barry Clayton series where you have a solution that the public hears but there was a an extra dimension to it and in this case there was a series of murders and they find out that one of the murders after everything's been done wasn't done by the man who was killed in the pursuit of, of capturing him and they decide not to pursue it, to let it go that in a sense justice has been done enough and so you've got a private solution that's uh, that's not known to the public. Action, I mean that's what the readers expect and the, the trick is to try to make it fresh. Um, sometimes the action is in a, 
uh, exotic location or dangerous location. I think of the two words, Reichenbach Falls, for all of our Holmes fans, where Holmes and Moriarty had their final clash. Uh, that was an interesting location. Um, you could go be, to the could be fighting on the top of the Empire State Building or something, right? Or uh, <laughs> somebody's hanging off. And <laughs> Bank of America Tower, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Downtown. Um, you can have uh, your detective think that she is prepared to go to the confrontation when she's going to confront the, the villain and then find out there was a betrayal and they knew she was coming or she shows up with a knife, what turns out to be a gun gunfight. That's another way to, to ratchet up the tension in the, in the final solution. Um, now, why do endings fail? Well, I think one reason is that the killer could have been chosen at random. There really wasn't enough to distinguish that killer from other suspects or it was so minor that it wasn't right um, or the ending is kind of ambiguous about what what really happened one that I particularly find uh, annoying is that when the killer just wasn't important enough in the story and maybe in the last chapter or next to the last chapter the killer shows up and they track him down but it really wasn't an integral part of, of the character development and relationships and that's that's not playing fair right i mean it, it, because you didn't know them until the very end of the book right right uh and you hadn't really had a chance to develop them through the book either right and yeah. some some kind of uncovered plot at the end and and uh, and this person shows up as the as the villain um the worst i think is what what you said that the woman said to i guess was it john grisham but you i figured out who it was on Page one fifty. It was John Hart. And, John Hart. And, and defend, but but I'm not sure that she knew what she was talking, about <laughs> or why she thought she knew what she was talking about. But I think he was using it just to illustrate the point that sometimes he, you know, as he writes these books, he kind of lets the the, the the plot unfold on its own. Whereas Gresham knows exactly what the last sentence is going to be of the book when he writes the first sentence of the book, right. and so he's using that to illustrate that he was still sort of letting the story develop as it goes. Now, that's a very risky thing to do in writing mysteries. Thrillers, I can see it. You can sort of let it unfold to some extent if people are chasing each other all over the place. But if you're trying to drop these clues and these hints, don't you as an author kind of have to know where you're going to end up? I think you have to know who did it. Okay. What the villain's motive was. How you get there oh, okay. can be a lot of different ways. That's and, interesting. So and, as long and, as you know who did it. Yeah. And so I would, I tend now to do what um, uh, John Hart would do, though maybe right. not as successfully as he's done. <laughs> he's, a tri he's a terrific writer. Yeah. And that is then you go back and you lay the clues in mm. afterwards. Oh, okay. When you've been able to see the, the story as a whole, and then you go, okay, what can I enhance to shift suspicion over to here? Because whether the the lady who talked to, to John right. Hart was actually correct or not, she raised a very valid point. And if on right. page 50 you think you knew who did right. it and I don't ever draw you off of that, then when he gets to the end, it's like, this was the dumbest detective novel I've ever read. My, my guess is she was trying to sound smarter than she was. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're right. You have to uh, – I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. As long as in a mystery you know who did it, you can kind of let some of the facts unfold. Right. Know, I think it's hard to write if you don't know where you're going to right. end up. You, right. I may not know. I don't know the final sentence like Grisham may know, and I don't right. outline, but at least I have 
a goal in mind and a revelation in mind that's going to, you know, that I'm working to. Which brings us to the the phrase I like, which is, uh, you don't want your ending to be predictable. You do want it to be inevitable. That as you're building your story, your choices narrow down, narrow down, narrow down, so that when you get to the end of that pyramid, if you will, that that last stone that's in place from the story could only be that that ending. Yeah, not predictable. But inevitable. And you also quoted Tom Clancy, I think, that uh, the difference in fiction and reality is that fiction has to make sense. Fiction has to make sense. And that's, I'm going to swing us all the way back to Aristotle when right. we talk about that stories are part of our DNA. I think stories are what help us make sense of the world. Every great religion is founded on a great story. Uh, we, we look at our own lives and we look back at patterns in our lives and we see it as a story. You know, how many times have you had someone say to you, what's that guy's story? You right. know, uh, yeah. and that's that's kind of why I feel like storytelling is so important. And knowing each other's stories is so important just in human relations. Uh, if you can't if you can't understand or or listen to someone else's story, then you've really shut yourself off. And, and this is really valuable, Mark, because uh, I, I had. John Buchan on the show is a lawyer who's First Amendment lawyer who's written a really good book called Code of the Forest. And I was asking him the question about lawyers writing books. And he said, well, you know, all the lawyers you talk to, you know, they all think they got a good book. Everybody thinks they got one good novel in them, right? But they just haven't decided to sit down and do it, right? And they say, how'd you find time to do that? Well, while you were playing golf and watching sports, I was working on my novel, on my book. So if more if more listeners uh, who are interested in this idea of telling their stories, you know, get a little, a few tips in the craft and start learning some things, uh, you know, the shortcuts, so to speak. I was telling you at a break in the podcast how I learned three buttons to push that shorten my editing time on podcast from like four hours to an hour and a half. I've been doing it for you know, three seasons. Well, you know, if authors or would-be authors learn a few tricks uh, – or techniques, however you want to call them, uh, to help them, then they can let their natural story come to life, right? Right. right. It's, it's yeah. the craft of telling something that is yeah. uniquely your Yeah, your like tale. learning how to drive the car before you get in and, st- <laughs> yes, <laughs> and take off. Because then have we all started as writers? Yeah. Right. We just got in without a license <laughs> and started driving down the road, you know? And, and then some of we- us had total wrecks. <laughs> <laughs> We did. Or we, draw, we drove down a one-way road in the wrong direction, only to find out when we met the editor at the end, we need to turn around and come back and start over and go in the other direction, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, well, Mark, this has been great. I appreciate you sitting down with me today to talk uh, writing. This is a, a real service you authors are providing to help support the podcast and help authors uh, give voice to their written words. I really appreciate you being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so yeah. much for the invitation. And yeah. I Hope someone got some information of use uh, from our conversation. Well, if nobody else did, I certainly did. So <laughs> we got that. And Murder in Rat Alley. So, uh, you know, you write a book a year. So are we already writing the next book? I've, I'm in the final phase of the book that would probably be out in next October. Okay. And what does final phase actually mean in, in terms of you working in your publisher? My editors, <laughs> I sent a first draft in. My okay. editor sent back some of the things that I've been trying to, to explain to you, <laughs> yeah. which was it basically ratchet up the tension in the third part of the of the book okay. as you head to the as you head okay. to the conclusion. She felt like it was all logical and everything, 
but make it a little darker, make it a little scarier, yeah. make it a little more suspenseful. So okay, that's so you're, what I'm you're thinking in that, about doing. You're in that phase I'm now. In that phase. Okay, yeah. and then you'll send that back, and then you have something else to talk about, and then you'll get into the galleys and the all that kind of thing. Right, yeah. it's scheduled to be out in October, so hopefully I'll have things wrapped up by February. Do we have a title yet for it or not? Yeah, fatal scores. Fatal, fatal score. scores, and it's okay. a Sam Blackman Asheville book, and it'll talk. It'll teach you some things about Babe Ruth's time in Asheville, a Hungarian composer called Bella Bartok who wrote in Asheville, and uh, Dr. Robert Moog, who invented the Moog synthesizer and revolutionized music in the '60s when you and I were children. Okay, all right. So, Murder in Rat Alley out in December 2019. Um, be looking for. Fatal Scores in October, November-ish of 2020? That's correct. Is that right? That's correct. Assuming that my editor and I come to an agreement. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, Mark, uh, again, thanks so much for being uh, on the show today. Oh, great. I really enjoyed it.